I'm not sure if I drew the short straw tonight or not, going first and getting to talk about money. Uh, it was pointed out, though, that uh, there is a good crowd. I don't know if that's because of uh, the speaker or the fact that Dr. Young is not here. <laughs> Do we, we want to vote on that? No. Uh, welcome to SPF 9, uh, Support, Preparation, and Fellowship. If I recall, uh, the number nine, protection, I think, isn't that like Crisco? I don't think it provides a whole lot of protection. Money uh, has a tendency to be a hot topic, and uh, I'll try not to burn anybody tonight. But here's what I want to do. I've titled my message, uh, as you can see, Worldly Wealth or Wordly Wealth, uh, Avoiding the Slippery Slope. And I'm going to be looking at Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3. If you have your Bible, you may want to go ahead and find it. Uh, but here's what's ahead of us. Uh, There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible on money and possessions and 16 of 38 parables on the topic. So the Bible obviously says a lot about money. I have uh, a bunch of slides in about 30 minutes. And Jeff told me that uh, I could talk for 45, but they're leaving in 30. So (laughs) that's what's ahead of us. So with that, if you would, let's turn to Psalm 73. Verse, the first three verses, and then we'll, we'll dig in. I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are good uh, all the time, and you are sovereign. Thank you for the word, your word and the truth that it contains. And I pray that as we look at biblical financial principles, that we would not look at them as a duty, but as our desire. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in verse 2, the psalmist writes that he almost slipped and that he nearly lost his foothold uh, when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, my feet did not almost slip. Uh, When I saw all that the world had to offer, this idea of keeping up with the Joneses, I slipped, and I slipped hard. Obviously, given the current condition of our economy, I think there's many others that have slipped. And I believe the problems of our economy are because of our wrong view of money. And that the solution, will only find the solution once we have the right view of money. Watch this. I think it'll help. How you doing? You know, I'm going to open a can of worms with this one, I think. All right? This one here is the big enchilada, amigos. All right? So and what, you're going to have to forgive me in advance if this stings a little. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to cut me a little slack if this conviction challenges you because I'd never want to do that. No, what I'm about to talk about is things people don't like to talk about. It goes up there with religion and politics. It's one of those things you don't talk about if all you want to do is make friends. No. This one here, this is a little different because the love of this thing, the love of it, you know what I'm saying, is the root of all kinds of evil. But on the other hand, without it, you can't do much good. All right? You crack the code yet? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, money, 
M-O-N-E-Y. Yeah, the almighty dollar, the cash, the cabbage, the greenbacks, the gravy, the loot, the moolah, whatever you want to call it. You know what I'm saying? I got my own personal favorite, the dead presidents. The higher number on the dollar bill, the goofier the president, the more hands want to touch it. Go figure. You know what? We ask a lot of questions about these presidential papers, don't we? Yeah. How are we going to spend it? How am I going to use it? My own personal favorite? Huh? Huh? How am I going to act like I don't have any so my relatives don't bother me anymore? Or how am I going to miss the offering plate every time it passes by? And, of course, the dominant Republican question, how am I going to invest and how do I keep it from the IRS? Yeah, money, the big, big question. But there's one question we always leave out, at least I do. Whose is it? I mean, whose money is it really? That is the million-dollar question, pardon the pun, right? I know some might say, hey, it's my money because I work hard with these hands. Yeah? Who gave you the hands, buddy? All right, you're smarter than some who gave you the brains. You're driven who gave you the ambition. All right, I know you can arrange a lot of things on your own, but you can't tell me you arranged your birthplace, who your parents were, who your friends are going to be, what schools you went to, the technology that was going to be there, the people that came before you to pave the way, the people are here now to lighten the load. Ah, you didn't arrange that, did you? Should I go on? No, 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 I don't think so. You know, I suppose all I'm trying to say is this, people. All right. I got a big wake-up call last year. I got my kid an Xbox 360. I threw it on the floor. Boom, that's yours. I got every possible, imaginable accessory that there is. Everyone you can think of, the cordless, wireless, bang-bang, the flip-flop, the yip-yap, everything you could possibly think of. Even threw in an HD plasma so everybody could see it beautifully. A couple of dozen games and said, hey, we're off to a good start. One day I come home and I said, hey, son, you mind if I play the game? You're only sitting there over in the corner. Maybe Dad can give it a shot. You know what he says to me? No, that's mine. Wait your turn. Needless to say, I did a 180 on the 360. And now that sucker sits comfortably in my own personal home theater. And I'm the only one with the key. You know why? Because everything in that baby is mine. And each of our lives is a story. And actually a compilation of stories. In many ways, our checkbooks are the stories of our lives. How we spend money tells of our values, what we buy, and how much we save, and to whom we give. In fact, our spending tells us more about our priorities than just about anything else. This is the reason the Bible talks so much about money. Money is neither good nor bad, but it can be used for either. And a wrong attitude towards or the misuse of money is what is bad. We must keep in mind that money is a tool a test, and a testimony, and that there should be a difference in the way we handle money. Money is not a measure of success. It's not a reward for godly living, and it's not a guarantee of contentment or a measure of success, or, excuse me, a measure of self-worth. Your net worth does not equal your self-worth. The Apostle Paul said that he learned to be content. And I'm sure we can all think of someone we know who has lots of money but isn't very happy. I want to be clear, this look, this is not a look at tithing, or it's not a lead-in to the to a Grace of Anne building campaign. In fact, our look at money is about the remaining percentage, what's left over after the tithe. All I'll say about tithing is this, that if you're concerned whether tithing is on the gross or the net, or is it actually 10%, I think you're missing the point. And I would encourage you to go back and read the story of the widow's mite found in Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. With this in mind, let me give you an overview of what I'd like to share with you tonight. In a group this size, we obviously all have different financial issues and concerns. 
Therefore, tonight I'm going to paint with a broad brush. Next week I will zero in a little more. I will attempt to stay away from giving any advice. And I just want to give you some economic data that's out there and then try to interpret it for you. First, we'll look at what I refer to as the slippery slope, where we are, how we got here, and where we headed. Then I want to share with you the significance of stewardship and possibly challenge your view about money and how you handle it. And finally, I'll wrap up with something that I refer to as the safety strap, the ultimate guarantee. Everywhere you look, the economy's a mess. Fraud, bailouts, bankruptcies, unemployment. The stock market is down. How did we get here? And, of course, the million-dollar question is, who's to blame? And I promise you, there's plenty of blame to go around. Early on, we all heard about subprime, mortgage lending to low- and moderate-income people. This is an extract from a 1999 New York Times article that was well-circulated. The article highlights, and I quote, increasing pressure from the Clinton administration to expand mortgage loans among low- and moderate-income people. I would love to take a closer look at the biblical view of government in a capitalistic, free society, but it's beyond our topic tonight. But let me just say this. As as we know, uh, subprime was just the tip of the iceberg. And so was it government socialist policies or was there something else, like Wall Street greed? This is an article from the Wall Street Journal. The article quotes a former Bear Stearns board member. He says, and I quote, I blame the system. I blame greed. Wall Street is really predicated on greed. This could happen to any firm. And it did. What does the Bible say about greed? Besides Bear Stearns, several other Wall Street firms and many banks have collapsed. But was it just government socialism? and Wall Street greed. This next article is probably my personal favorite. I bet that after you read the title, someone will pop into your mind. Hi, my name is Fred, and I'm addicted to credit cards. I just hope the person you thought of wasn't your spouse. Let me say that. Let me read it, and I quote, After years of spending... $200 jeans, a silver BMW, and other grown-up toys, Michael Wagner had racked up $25,000 in credit card debt and was behind on his mortgage and car payments. Creditors called night and day. It was a hopeless downward spiral. What does the Bible say about debt? Unfortunately, Michael isn't the only one in financial bondage. As you can see from this next table, in the past 30 years, consumer debt has more than doubled as a percentage of disposable income. Debt can be like driving an automobile that gets poor gas mileage. It can get expensive, and you need to make sure that there's plenty of gas or cash in the tank. The problem is there's not a lot of fuel in the tank. This graph illustrates the U.S. personal savings rate over the past 62 years. And as you can see in the last 27 years, from 1981 to 2008, the level of savings has fallen dramatically. What is socked away in savings is fuel in the tank. When someone experiences a financial setback, 
like a medical emergency or a job loss or a divorce, how much gas is in the tank becomes very important. The good news is, is that the level of savings has started to increase. So we've looked at how we slipped. Now let's talk about where we're headed. We slipped because of high debt and low savings. What are the implications? As I said earlier, the economy is obviously a mess. A recovery in the stock market could take a long time. In just a second, we'll look at the past downturns and recoveries in the stock market. Keep in mind that minus 50% plus 50% does not equal zero. A 50% decrease requires a 100% increase to get back to even. I encourage you to stay truly diversified and to watch out for the safety track. Taxes, interest rate, and price inflation are expected to increase. Let me share with you why. First, let's look at the government programs that are currently available. This is an excerpt from a citizen's guide to the 2008 financial report of the U.S. government. It's available online, and it's an easy read. It's not very pleasant, but it is easy. Let me read to you a couple of sentences from the report. If the government is to retain the ability to manage a financial crisis such as the one today, it must eventually address the long-term physical imbalance resulting from Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. The government's physical policies for these programs as currently structured are not sustainable. We are on an unsustainable financial path. The government has three options concerning their financial obligations. They can default, they can increase taxes, or they can just print more money and inflate their way out. The government could obviously decide not to pay benefits promised and or holders of U.S. debt. And I thought it was interesting a few months ago when the Chinese raised the question of American solvency. The U.S. government could obviously tax its way out, and I believe the political pieces are in place for taxes to increase. And finally, the U.S. government could crank up the printing presses and just print more money. This is a speech from then-Governor Fed Governor Ben Bernanke gave to a group of economists back in 2002 on the heels of the collapse of the Japanese economy. In his speech, Mr. Bernanke outlined what the Fed would do if deflation hit here. He was pretty confident that it wouldn't happen. But we're currently tracking right along. The first thing he said he'd do is he would take interest rates to near zero. And then if that didn't stimulate the economy, the next thing he would do, and I quote, like, US, like gold, U.S. dollars have value only to the extent that they are strictly limited in supply. But the U.S. government has a technology called a printing press, or today it's electronic equivalent, that allows it to produce as many U.S. dollars as it wishes at essentially no cost. We conclude that under a paper money system, a determined government can always generate higher spending and hence positive inflation. Of course, the government is not going to print money and distribute it willy-nilly. That's a quote. 
Well, as you can see from this chart, the U.S. government has cranked up the printing press. I don't know how clear it comes through, um, but it looks like a flagpole, the box over to the right. The shaded areas are recessions, previous recessions. And this is a chart that the Federal Reserve shows to increase the increase in the monetary base. And we've all heard of TARP, T-A-R-P, and TALF, T-A-L-F. Well, I heard recently there's a new one, uh, (laughs) C-R-A-P. With all this money that they've created, uh, obviously I just, I hope they don't distribute it uh, willy-nilly. Well, how does all this affect you? And again, I mentioned I was going to paint with a broad brush, and, and some of this is probably review for some of you, but let's talk about the implications. We went back and looked at the past significant drops in the stock market, the red triangle on your left. Then we calculated the number of months that it took for the stock market to get back to even, the green triangle on your right. After the Depression, it took over 12 years to get back to even. And after the gas line shortages in the early 70s, it took nearly two years to get back to even. And after the September 11th attack, it took over four years for the stock market to fully recover and get back to even. So the million-dollar question is, how long will this recovery take? Well... If history's any guide, let me just narrow it up for you. My guess is somewhere between two years and 12 years. If we look at history, history reveals that stocks have been a strong performer after recessions. While many investors fear the roller coaster ride of the stock market, stocks typically lead their way, the way out of recessions. Therefore, moving money into stocks may benefit your portfolio. What this chart shows is how stocks have performed one month, six months, one year, or three years after a recession. When I talk about the roller coaster ride of the stock market, this is what I'm speaking of. When you invest, you're usually upbeat and optimistic. But at some point, you get nervous and possibly even terrified. Unfortunately, many people make poor decisions during the ups and downs of the stock market. Instead of buying low and selling high, they buy high and sell low. Uh, We share with clients sometimes that we're not sure we manage money as much as we manage emotions. So what's the solution? Diversification. It's the idea of not putting all your eggs in one basket. And it's a timeless biblical principle and one of the most important factors of your investment portfolio. It is the process of building a diversified portfolio by combining different asset classes in varying proportions. Every asset has distinct characteristics and may perform differently in response to economic changes. To better understand this, think about when you mix the colors blue and yellow. You get the color green. The idea is that when you properly combine two different asset classes, it can have a dramatic effect on your portfolio. Let me give you an example. This image illustrates the annual returns of three different portfolios over a seven-year period. Stocks represent a 100% investment in stocks, and bonds represent a 100% investment in bonds. 
In this example, when stocks and bonds are combined in equal amounts, the portfolio experienced less mood swings than stocks alone, stocks alone and still maintained an attractive return. Notice that stock returns were up when bond returns were down, and vice versa. This offsetting movement assisted in reducing risk. Diversification does not eliminate the risk of investment losses. A common mistake for many investors is, is that they diversify in name only. An in-depth analysis can be used to determine overlap. This image illustrates two portfolios that individually comprise five mutual funds. And each oval within the box represents the investment footprint of a mutual fund. As you can see, the level of diversification provided by each portfolio is quite different. The funds in portfolio A significantly overlap with one another. While some overlap is acceptable, too much defeats the purpose. In contrast, portfolio B contains funds that span across many different investment styles. While not all investments are appropriate for all investors, it's important to make sure that you are truly diversified. Let me see if I can show you this a different way. This image shows the top 15 holdings of two different actual mutual funds. And as you can see, when you peel the onion back, the funds own stocks in many of the same companies, Exxon, GE, AT&T, and IBM. While it might appear that an investor has diversified, the reality is they clearly haven't. As you can see from this image, that different roads can lead to the same destination. Therefore, a mixture of different investments, stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities like gold, may give you a smooth ride. Commodities and real estate are often overlooked, and these assets can be excellent vehicles for diversification because when, they, when traditional assets like stocks and bonds perform poorly, these alternative assets have done well. But again, diversification does not eliminate the risk of investment losses, and in 2008, most asset classes lost money. Going forward, it will be important that you stay truly diversified. As you can see from this next image, that during deflation, as we are currently experiencing and was experienced during the Depression, the stock market can get very bumpy. If you recall from the roller coaster image, investors typically jump off the roller coaster when it gets bumpy and jump over to smoother riding investments like treasuries or CDs. Therefore, I want to alert you to something that I refer to as the safety trap. Taxes and inflation can have a dramatic effect on your investment portfolio. And as you can see, over the long run, treasury bills, while a smoother ride, do not provide any purchasing power underperforming inflation over this time period. In a world with the potential for higher taxes and higher inflation, focusing on risk-free investments alone will not provide investors with a substantial increase in wealth. So I just advise you to beware of the safety trap. 
Hopefully this has given you some insight into where we are, how we got here, and potentially where we're headed. Now I want to shift gears and take a look at the importance of handling money from a biblical perspective. Because as I said at the beginning, we will only find the solution once we have the proper view of money. Our attitude toward and how we handle money is important. Not because I say so, but let me read to you what some others have said about the topic. Pastor John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, wrote, The credibility of Christ hangs on how we use our money. And in his book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn wrote that 15% of everything Christ said relates to this topic, more than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. John MacArthur said that 50% of your waking time, you're thinking about money, how to get it, how to spend it, how to save it, how to earn it, how to invest it, how to borrow it, or how to find it. And finally, Jesus, our ultimate authority, said that we cannot serve two masters. We'll either hate one or love the other, or we will be devoted to one and despise the other. That sounds pretty clear to me. I'm a black and white guy, love, hate devoted, despised. Our attitude towards money and how we handle money affects our relationship with God. But is the Bible applicable to our current economy? A a book that was written over thousands of years and thousands of years ago, can it be relevant today? Of course it is. My hope is that you will see that God's Word is significant, useful, timeless, and essential. And that, as and that you would feel thoroughly equipped when it comes to handling money based on biblical principles. It has been said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Given the condition of our economy, and since the Bible is relevant, then we should at least consider changing or at least challenging the way we think about money and how we handle it. We must be willing to test the world's ways and even think outside the box because God's ways are not our ways. And with so many verses on money and possessions, let's compare and contrast what the Bible says and what the world says about money. I've included a number of scripture references for you and the main idea on the topic. As we were asking the video, whose is it anyway? The world says it's mine. What I possess, I alone own, and I alone control my own destiny. What scripture says is what I possess, God owns. God owns it all. Haggai 2.8 says the gold and silver is mine. Psalms 50.10 says the cattle on a thousand hills. God is sovereign, and he controls all events, good and bad, according to Isaiah 45.7. How about when it comes to involvement? The world says that God has no involvement in how I handle my money. My happiness is based on being able to afford my desired standard of living. Scripture says that as you learn and follow biblical financial principles, you will draw closer to Christ and learn to be content in every circumstance. 
When it comes to debt, it's been said that we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. God discourages debt because He wants us to be free to serve Him. How about role and responsibility? The world says, you made it, you deserve it, and a whole lot more. And you can spend it any way you want to, and you'll be happy. Scripture says that you can only be content if you have learned to be a faithful steward handling money from the Lord's perspective. The key to contentment is faithful obedience. God is the author and the perfecter of our stories. So obviously God plays an important part. The reality is is it's all about God. And we must recognize that He is the owner of all our possessions. Therefore, every spending decision becomes a spiritual decision. Isaiah 43.7 tells us that we are created for God's glory. So the question we should ask ourselves is, how can I glorify God with the money that He has entrusted to us? Since God owns it all, and it's all under His control, what is, his, what is our role? We are called to be faithful stewards of all our resources. 1 Corinthians 4.2 tells us, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Hosea 4.6 tells us that God's people perish from a lack of knowledge. So ignorance of biblical financial principles is no excuse. Unfortunately, ignorance of or disobedience to biblical financial or biblical principles frequently causes many problems. Luke 16:10-13 says, "Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will then trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? This passage tells us that we must be trusted with all of our resources, even the little things. When we are faithful, it leads to contentment. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me ask you, whom or what do you trust and treasure? Are you financially content? Or have you slipped like the psalmist wrote in Psalm 73? I'm sure many of you are going through a challenging time during this difficult economy. Deuteronomy 8.2 tells us that the wilderness periods of our lives are to humble us and to test us in order to know what is in our heart, whether or not we'll keep God's commandments. The Apostle Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians that he was exceedingly joyful in all tribulations, 2 Corinthians 7.4. How do you get to the point where you are exceedingly joyful in all your tribulations? I believe that Paul could say this, because he held on to the promises of God. I encourage you to cling to God's promises. Promises like Jeremiah 29.11. It says, God has a plan and a purpose, and it's not to harm you. 
In Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. In Jeremiah 33.3, that says, Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. As I conclude, I want to share with you a promise that I have titled The Safety Strap. It comes from Hebrews 13.5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God has not left His throne. He knows when you stand up and He knows when you sit down. You are made in His image and you are important invaluable. Love the Lord, not money, with all your heart, soul, and mind. He loves you, and He will never leave you or forsake you. Cling to the safety strap. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are good, and we thank You for Your Word and the truth that it contains. Uh, Thank You for uh, Your promises. Uh, like this one, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for the uh, practical principles of how to handle our finances uh, that your word contains. And I pray that you will give us courage and strength as we go forward, that we would be faithful, uh, obedient stewards. In your son's name we pray. Amen.